0: We will hear argument next in Case 2382,
1: Territory of Guam versus United States. Mr. Garr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The United States made a strategic decision to steer the cleanup of the ORDOT dump away from CERCLA and to Guam, and Guam under the Clean Water Act instead, no doubt to insulate itself from liability for its own role in building and using the dump. Yet now the United States claims that the party's Clean Water Act settlement nevertheless triggered a CERCLA contribution claim, a claim under the very statute it sought to avoid. That's wrong for two independent reasons. First, Section 113F3B of CERCLA requires the resolution of CERCLA liability to trigger a CERCLA contribution claim. Section 113F3B is part of an integrated Circla contribution provision. Read in context, the phrase resolved its liability naturally refers to circular liability. And that reading squares with traditional contribution principles which require the resolution of a common liability. The common liability that triggers a circular contribution claim is circular liability. The United States' contrary interpretation depends upon construing Section 113F3B as if it were an island ripped from its context. It creates the untenable result that the meaning of the phrase, resolved its liability, changes from one paragraph of Section 113F to the next, and it manufactures an unprecedented contribution right that does not require a common liability and can be triggered even when the defendant is immune from liability on the settled claim, as the United States was here. None of that makes any sense. And second, the United States position also fails because the party's Clean Water Act settlement simply does not resolve Guam's liability for a response action. Under the plain terms of the decree, Guam was just as exposed to liability for a response action after the decree as it was before, including under CERCLA itself. I welcome the court's questions.
0: Uh, Mr. Garr, under uh, the position of the United States... points out out an incongruity uh, in in your position, which is that you want to imply uh, a term like uh, under CERCLA uh, into uh, uh, Section 113, but you're bringing the case um, under Section 107 yourself where you don't want to imply uh, such a term. I just wanted to make sure I have your response to that.
1: Well, the question is whether the settlement of the Clean Water Act triggered a contribution right under Section 113F3B, and that depends on whether or not it resolved liability under CERCLA. I don't think there's any inconsistency in our view. Everybody agrees that if the settlement didn't trigger 113F3B, then we are entitled to proceed under Section 107A for the recovery of costs.
0: You. Uh Articulate this theory of statutory interpretation that centers upon what you call an anchor provision. And I'm I'm not quite sure where that fits in our sort of list of statutory guidelines. I I gather it's not quite a a defined term, but it's also not a term of art. Uh, What's the, the best authority that you can point me to where you have the kind of analysis that you're asking us to adopt here?
1: Well, I would point you to the cardinal rule that provisions have to be construed in context and in light of their surrounding provisions. So here, 113F3B is part of an integrated CERCLA contribution provision, and it makes sense to read the language, the key phrase, resolve its liability and how that is used throughout the statute. And if you look at 113F, it starts by establishing an F1 the liability that, that matters, and that's circular liability. And then in each provision thereafter, it uses the phrase resolved its liability. And the government doesn't dispute that resolved its liability in F2 means circular liability, and there's no reason it would have any different meaning in F3B. And I think that's perfectly consistent with the rule of context that this always applies And that the abnormal rule here is the one asserted by the government, which is that you should just take this provision and consider it as if it were an island in a vacuum without regard to its surrounding provisions. Justice Thomas?
2: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Gar, um, is there any other instance in which uh, that you can think of where the parties reach a a settlement and then they turn around and sue each other over the very same uh, problem?
1: Well, I mean, there, there's certainly other instances that trigger a contribution claim, Your Honor. And, and I think, you know, one of the incongruities here is that the, the United States is not uh, subject to suit under the Clean Water Act. So the whole notion that that settlement would trigger a contribution claim is uh, at war with basic principles of contrib- contribution, which this court has recognized Congress adopted in Section 113F but aren't you gonna have a
2: problem even if you get beyond the uh, statute of limitations? uh, If you say that CERCLA is contained, then why would you bring a Clean Water Act claim under CERCLA?
1: Well, I mean, you couldn't, I mean, certainly, uh, I don't think that situation would arise, Your Honor, if I understand the question. I mean, here the United States has, it could have certainly pursued a claim under CERCLA it didn't in order to insulate itself uh, uh, from liability, and so it brought the claim under the Clean Water Act. And our position is consistent with traditional principles of contribution that the settlement of that claim didn't trigger a circular contribution right, which we think falls from the terms of the statute as well.
2: Have there been other instances in which uh, uh, other claims under other provisions uh, were then uh, brought under circular for contribution purposes? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, there's some cases that have arisen in the circuits, Your Honor, but I mean, up until um, relatively uh, recent, I think the position was that you would expect a, a circular claim to trigger circuit liability. I mean, it wasn't until, I think, 2013 that uh, a circuit first adopted the contrary rule, and it just throws a wrench into the whole way in which this provision was intended to operate and creates n- numerous anomalies, including giving the phrase "results its liability a different meaning throughout the statute.
2: But the contribution you're seeking comes from clean, the Clean Water Act. That's what I'm getting at. I did, that's, if, if you're saying the statute of limitations shouldn't apply, should be contained under CERCLA, then why would you be bringing a claim from the Clean Water Act for contribution under CERCLA?
1: Oh, we're not, Your Honor. We're, we're, we're bringing a cost recovery claim under Section 107A of Circla. The government's position is that we were required to bring a contribution claim in the wake of the Clean Water Act settlement. So it's really that the government's position that creates the anomaly there.
3: Thank you. Justice Breyer? Thank you. Uh, if we got to the second question, uh, I think your position is that uh, a settlement requires, for the purposes of this act it requires that there be an express admission of liability. Why? I mean, people right. settle cases all the time where where they're not going to admit they were liable, but they might agree to take actions of X, Y, or Z in the future, and you might, somebody might without do the same thing here.
1: Right, and that's not our position, Justice Breyer. What? We don't make the argument that you have to admit that the claim was valid. And, and here, you know, we don't have clause, is we have is a clause saying there was no finding of liability. But fundamentally, on the second question, the problem with the settlement is it doesn't extinguish any liability. The settlement explicitly gives the United States the option to pursue, you know, any and all claims under any law for the same conduct and the same actions that were settled here, and that's atypical. The United States but could they bring it under circle
3: again? Excuse me, Your Honor? Could They could bring the circular claim, the circular claim again?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, in paragraphs 47 and 48... Well, then what did you get out of
3: your agreement? Nothing?
1: Well, Your Honor, the one thing that it resolved was the Clean Water Act penalties, which are statutory penalties that can add up. But it didn't resolve any liability with respect to a response action. And in fact, you know, once this action was taken to cap the dump, the United States, in theory, could come back and sue under CERCLA the next day and say, well, you know what, we've thought about it some more, and we think you should tear up and remove the waste altogether. This Settlement didn't resolve any liability. And again, that's atypical because if you look at the model consent decree, Mm -hmm. it includes a covenant not to sue except for future unknown conditions. But the settlement here uh, left Guam exposed to liability under any law with respect to any claim involving a response action. And so for that reason alone, we would urge you to rule for us on the second question presented.
3: I see. (laughs) Okay. Thank you.
1: Justice
4: Alito, I'd like to ask you a question about what you see as the relationship between Section One Thirteen F One and uh, One Thirteen F Three. So, One Thirteen F One provides a contribution action to offset circular liability, and it does so quote during or following any civil action close quote, under 106 or 107. Then paragraph 2 makes it clear that those who settle their liability won't be subject to a contribution action for the matters addressed in the settlement. And then what does uh, 113 F3B add? Aren't judicially approved settlements already covered by the phrase following any civil action in paragraph 1?
1: Right. So, Your Honor, what it would cover is a situation where there's no pending litigation, the parties voluntarily agree to settle with the United States or a state, and then they go to court to judicially approve that. And so I think in that instance, it would make sense for Congress to spell out what happens with respect to such a settlement. And I would add, with respect to the superfluidity argument by the United States, I mean, this also covers administrative settlements, and so that wouldn't be covered at all by uh, F1. There would be no pending litigation. And I think you know, once Congress is going to spell out what happens in the case of administrative settlement, I think it only makes sense for it to spell out what happens in the case of a judicially approved settlement where there had been no prior litigation. And if that's a little bit belts and suspender, that's something that this court has recognized Congress has done elsewhere in circle. And I think it made perfect sense, Your Honor. Uh,
4: <clears throat> what should we make of the fact that uh, paragraph 3C, uh, F1, uh, 3C refers to, uh, I'm sorry, F3C refers to any contribution action brought under this paragraph and sets its own requirement that such actions, quote, shall be governed by federal law. If Congress meant for um, all, all the details in paragraph 1 to carry through to the other paragraphs, including three, why would it have needed to include that language?
1: Well, I mean, I think what it does is it tells you that the, the, the federal, um, the, the circular contribution claim is a federal claim, and so it would other override other provisions, and that's one of the problems that the state and address, and that the government's interpretation would mean that any time you settle a non-circular claim under state law, um, it would trigger this federal contribution claim and therefore override states' um, different cost recovery regimes, which is a direct intrusion that this court would not presume that Congress intended unless it said so. So I think the fact that Congress spelled out that these contribution actions brought under federal law, you know, is quite significant in pointing to the conclusion that Congress didn't mean this strange contribution right the, that the United States says it created. All right. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor?
5: Mr. Garr, I think it's your second question presented that uh, may have created my colleague Justice Breyer's confusion because it was my own. Your question asks whether a settlement that expressly disclaims any liability determination and leaves the settling party exposed to future liability can trigger a contribution claim under Circular Section 113F, one, one, three 3B. Three um, settlement agreements often can disclaim liability but resolve liability at the same time. Many settlement agreements will say, I don't admit liability, but I will resolve my liability under your claims, under the Clean Water Act. That's what happened here, correct?
1: Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, they did say that there was no finding Of liability, your honor, but 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 it still
5: resolved the Clean Water Act claims. Correct?
1: Uh, It didn't resolve liability, your honor. uh, It resolved the the the
5: claims, counsel. Not the liability, but the claims. Correct? Well, no. I mean, the claims themselves were conditioned on compliance
1: with the decree, and that's. Counsel, you're squibbling
5: with words. You got some value out of it. You got away from some damages that you were fearful of. So it resolves something. You're absolutely right. All right. Now, Mr. Garth, consider that. Could I have if that if that settlement had said this agreement resolves Guam's legal obligations under all federal environmental statutes? By the way, that's very comparable to most general releases. This settlement resolves all claims arising from related to whatever the complaint is, a ri- uh, known or unknown. That's the typical general release. If it had been a general release like that, would you have any arguments in this case?
1: Uh, the argument would be much different, and I think that probably would resolve liability, and that's what's missing here, Your Honor, is a general release. It never resolves liability. Those and-
5: general, counsel, Mr. Garr, those general releases. That's your strongest argument, which
1: is. I agree. I mean, I think all the provisions work together, Your Honor, but I agree that release, the the lack of any covenant not to sue, and the way in which the, the settlement preserves the right to bring suit under any claim, I mean, that's very unusual, and that defeats the finding that it resolves liability. Li- the resolution of liability is a two-way street. Guam agreed to do some things here, but the United States never relinquished its claims to sue Guam for the very same conduct, the very same actions here, and that's ex- made explicit in the decree. The only thing that's the your greatest
5: that, act- That's the great inequity here, which is the U.S. Re- retained the right to sue you under the Clean Water Act. So your argument is we should have the right to sue them, correct, for contribution? Not- your Honor,
1: not just the Clean Water Act, but I'm under sorry, any the, law, I mean, that's the under paragraph forty-eight, right? Well, Council, please.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor, Justice Kagan. Uh, Mr. Gore, I guess I'd, I'm wondering whether your anchoring argument is, is is really just an effort to make lemonade out of lemons, and and the reason I say that is because it's usually considered. A problem in statutory interpretation when one provision, especially very close to another provision, has um, very different language. So, you know, F1 says liability under 9607 or 9606, and then F3B does not say that, but instead uses a very different formulation, drops the section numbers, and says liability for some or all of a response action. So isn't the kind of obvious argument here uh, that F3B meant something different from F1?
1: Right, and that, that's the reasoning of the DC circuit. And what it said was F1 uses circular language and f F3B doesn't, and it was incorrect about that because f 3 D B does use CERCLA-specific language. It uses the terms of our response action and response cost, which actually track the references to 106 and 107 and F1. But I think, Your Honor, you know, fundamentally what they skipped over is F1 spells out that the liability is under circla. and then every other provision here within this uh, 113F re- uses the phrase resolved its liability. And the government does dis- doesn't dispute that in F2, when Congress said resolved its liability, it meant circular liability. And then when, it's only when you get to F3 that the government says resolved its liability it doesn't mean Circle liability. It means liability under any law you could think of. Well, why, why that- do we
6: necessarily think that F2 is circular liability? F2 says liability about matters addressed in the settlement. I mean, you could think that F2 is more like F3 than it is like F1.
1: Well, I mean, you should ask the government that question because it's never disputed our position that it has to be circular liability. If it were otherwise, then F2 would create this extraordinarily broad immunity that a party could settle uh, any claim under any statute and yet receive this immunity from contribution. The government has never taken that position. I mean, look, F1 tells you that the liability that matters is circular when people are suing each other, and the other provisions deal with the question of what happens when there's a settlement. And all of this is against the backdrop of... Common law contribution principle. Is, is it possible, Mr. Mr.
6: Gard, that that it makes perfect sense to to understand F one differently from F three uh, B, um, just because Circle is a statute that's designed to encourage settlements, and if you take this settlement provision to be, uh, broad, it, it, if F three B is broader, um, it would suggest that it would encourage more settlements.
1: Well, I don't think it's going to encourage more settlements, Your Honor. People have to be worried about settling non-Circla claims triggering circular rights. And I think all this has to be construed against common law contribution principles, which require a common liability. And the common liability here is Circla liability. And this court has held that F-113F is construed against common law principles, and that rule itself requires the conclusion that Congress meant the obvious. Which Thank is, you, Mr. Gar. Thank you, Your Honor, Justice Gorsuch.
7: Mr. Gorsuch, just
8: to be clear, the, uh, the, there's no need for this court to touch the 107 question, is there?
1: Well, uh, no, Your Honor, there's not. I mean, that, that's a separate issue that would go forward on remand.
8: And uh, so, whether you succeed or not is immaterial for the purposes of this appeal.
1: Right. The only the, the fundamental question here is whether or not the Clean Water Act settlement required us to bring a claim under. Three B, one
8: thirteen three Right. I, I understand. I understand why the SG wanted to inject it in this case, but I also want to just be clear that we don't have to touch it.
1: That's absolutely right, Your Honor.
8: Okay. And then, can you um, <laughs> explain for a moment uh, your argument about the preemptive effect of of the government's position for state contribution laws and what that would look like?
1: Sure, Your Honor. I mean, And it gets back to Justice Salito's point that in 113.3C, um, uh, the Congress provided that a contribution action brought under this paragraph shall be governed by federal law. So that means that if a person um, settles a claim uh, other than under Circle, under a state provision, that that would trigger a federal contribution right, which would preempt the alternative regimes that states across the country have adopted to deal with cost recovery in this situation. And, you know, the, the amici brief filed by the states spells this out clearly. I mean, that's a direct intrusion into state autonomy that you wouldn't presume that Congress intended when it adopted a circular of contribution provision.
8: Well, I guess I just want to understand better the magnitude of that, the consequences and, the, and practical consequences of that, um, and, and why we wouldn't assume that, uh, meant, meant to do exactly that. So, you well,
1: those sure, Your Honor. And, and again, I think this gets back to what it means. Uh, to have a contribution claim, I mean, ordinarily you would try, you would require a common liability, so you would settle liability for this, and you'd have a contribution claim under the same liability. And what the government's interpretation does here is to import this, you know, discrete circle of contribution claim, as you know, into other federal statutes and to override other state laws that deal with cost contribution. I mean, Congress ordinarily doesn't create a contribution right, but under uh, the government's uh, interpretation, the settlement of a claim other than CERCLA would trigger this contribution right under Circla and effectively import a contribution regime into other provisions under federal law as well as state law. And that's very disruptive, and it's hard to believe that Congress intended it. And all of those problems are resolved by giving this contribution provision its you know, normal meaning of requiring the resolution of a common liability, which here would be Circla liability.
9: Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice, and good afternoon, Mr. Gart. Do you um, or can you give me uh, problems that you think would result outside of this case uh, if we adopted the government's interpretation? Well,
1: well, sure, Your Honor. I mean, at first, is the trap for the unwary that you know is, is epitomized by this case—that you would be settling a claim under a different statute. To which the United States itself enjoys immunity, which is true of the Clean Water Act, and that somehow that that settlement would trigger a Circla contribution right. So, so, so that in itself is is a problem that I think you would avoid unless Congress was clear. Another problem is, you know, the problem with displacing um, contrary uh, federal uh, federal and state con- uh, cost recovery regimes, which I was discussing with Justice. Gorsuch. I mean, I think it also creates this unprecedented contribution right not known to the common law where you don't need a common liability, where the resolution of liability under one statute um, somehow triggers contribution right under a different statute. I mean, all of that is problems that this court can avoid by simply um, construing this circle of contribution provision to be tied to circula liability.
9: Thank you, Mr. Gar.
1: Justice
10: Barrett? Good afternoon, Mr. Gar. I have a question just about how, and I'm sure this comes of my ignorance of CERCLA actions, but how this works. So 113 F3B refers to response action, you know, which is defined in, you know, 106 and 107, which talks about the ability of, you know, the, the, the section that you want to sue the United States under, um, your ability to recover action, costs of an action. So if there's not been an action, so there's been no judicially determined amount of response costs, and there's been no administrative or judicially approved settlement. How does the court go about, or or how do the parties go about, deciding whether costs undertaken actually were response costs?
1: Well, Your Honor, I, I hope this is responsive, but, but what would happen is, like, typically you'd either have litigation among the parties over CERCLA liability, and that would trigger the contribution right in F1, mm-hmm. or the parties could voluntarily settle with a, a state authority or the United States, in which case they could spell out specific actions. You know, ordinarily the EPA model itself would spell out that those actions are taken under CERCLA. Here, the United States proceeded under the Clean Water Act. We think pretty clearly because it was immune from liability itself under that act. And and that's really what creates the, you know, unusual circumstances leading to the United States position here.
10: Well, I guess what I'm getting at is trying to figure out how CERCLA specific this term, you know, response costs is. I mean, because as defined in CERCLA, you know, the United States is right. It's pretty broad. It can encompass a lot of different things. So what makes something a response cost to CERCLA as opposed to, you know, just a cost for something that wouldn't be covered by CERCLA. And how do you know, right. given the broad definition of response costs and the fact that the costs are undertaken not pursuant to any sort of EPA rule necessarily?
1: Right. So, so you're right. I mean, response action and response cost is a, is a well-known circle term of art. And our position under 13FB b at FB is, like, what's the liability for that? But what I would say, Your Honor, one thing that's critical is in order to qualify as a response action or response cost, the action or cost has to be incurred in connection with the release of hazardous substances. And another thing that's unusual about the Clean Water Act settlement here is it never identified any hazardous substances um, included within the definition of response costs or action under CERCLA. It only identified pollutants, the discharge of pollutants under the Clean Water Act, which is a different term and doesn't necessarily include hazardous substances under CERCLA. And that's another reason why the resolution of the Party's Clean Water Act claims could not have resolved liability for a response action, a term defined by CERCLA.
10: Thank you, Mr. Gar. A minute to wrap up. Mr. Garr?
1: Thank you, Your Honor. In our view, reading Section 113F3B in context in the light of traditional principles of contribution compels Guam's interpretation. But taking a step back, here's what's at stake. Adopting Guam's interpretation would ensure that Circles Contribution Rule is circular contained. It would give the phrase resolve its liability the same meaning throughout Section 113F. It would ensure that cer- that Section 113F 3B does not indirectly override state's own cost recovery rules, and it would eliminate a trap for the unwary among those settling non circlet claims. Conversely, it's hard to see any real negative impact to the United States from a ruling in Guam's favor in this case, other than having to pay its fair share for the ODOT cleanup. Indeed, EPA's own model settlement agreements give the United States a ready-made solution should it lose this case. In some, Guam's interpretation is not only right, but is far better for the implementation of circlet in the long haul. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Suri.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Section 113F3B can give rise to a contribution claim, regardless of whether the underlying claim arose under CERCLA or some other statute. This follows most naturally from the meaning of the words, liability for a response action." The term response action is defined in CERCLA in a way that does not depend on which underlying statute that action was undertaken in order to comply with. In addition, CERCLA often uses the term response action to include acts taken under other statutes. If Congress wanted to limit this provision to CERCLA liability, it could easily have said so. There are many other provisions of the Act that use terms such as settlement under this Act, liability under this Act, or response action under this Act. There's no such limiting language in the provision at issue here. Turning to the second question, the settlement here resolved Guam's liability. A party resolves liability if it settles its legal obligation to perform or pay for a response action. That's exactly what the settlement here did. I welcome the Court's questions.
0: Uh, Counsel, looking at um, F2, it's entitled Settlement The the first uh, sentence there begins, a person who has resolved its liability to the United States. Uh, Is that liability for anything, or is that liability under circling?
7: It's neither of those things, Mr. Chief Justice. It's liability for a response action. Now, I acknowledge that F2 is probably the most difficult provision for us to deal with, but let me explain why it's justified to infer the term for a response action in F2 in a way that it's not justified in F3B. The first before part, you
0: do that, just you're, you're explaining the difference between two identical phrases, right? The, no, one, not. the one resolved its liability to the United States under two and Resolved its liability to the United States under 3B.
7: No, they're not identical phrases. F2 is just resolved its liability to the United States. And F3B is resolved its liability to the United States for some or all of a response action. And that's the first difference I wanted to focus on, which is that phrase for some or all of a response action tells us what the nature of the liability must be in F3B. F2, however, is simply silent about the nature of the liability. It contains a gap, and therefore it's justified to look at context to fill the gap. The second point is that uh, it's it's almost that there's an absurdity argument rather than a textual argument in F2, because it seems unthinkable that resolved its liability means any liability whatsoever under the sun. There's no such concern in F3b.
0: Well, F3B doesn't, I mean, it has the language that you mentioned, uh, and F2 doesn't, because we're not talking about response actions uh, under 2, right? Although 3B is talking about response
8: actions.
7: I agree, Mr. Chief Justice. What that proves is that the presumption that of the uh, Disparate inclusion and omission of language suggests a difference in meaning is not absolute. It can be overcome by competing indications in the opposite direction. And we do think there are competing indications in F2, but there aren't in F3B. Thank
0: you, counsel. Justice Thomas.
2: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, Counsel, I admit to being somewhat confused by this primarily because of the... um, Uh, earlier Clean Water Act uh, settlement, Uh, do you think um, that uh, you could have a circular recovery for, say, penalties under other uh, environmental uh, provisions?
7: No, Justice Thomas. The circular recovery would only be for response costs or response actions, not for penalties under other statutes.
2: Uh, could you, well, could you have brought a circle of action against Guam after the uh, 2004 settlement? Uh,
7: we do not believe that the settlement here would have allowed us to bring such an action against Guam, and I could walk you through the relevant provisions if you'd like. They're yeah, on, I would. Uh, they're on page 166A of the Petition Appendix, paragraphs 45, 46, and 48. Paragraph 45 says that the settlement settles the claim in the decree and under the background law of preclusion and judgments, uh, two claims are considered the same if they arise out of the same transaction or occurrence, even if they involve different statutes. This is confirmed by paragraph 46, which says that uh, the uh, decree should not be interpreted to limit the United States' right to bring claims involving unrelated violations. That necessarily implies that the decree does limit the United States' right to bring claims for related violations. There's also Justice Breyer's point that he raised in the question, which is the decree simply wouldn't make any sense if Guam didn't get anything out of it. Now, they're relying on paragraph 48, but the first words of paragraph 48 are, except as specifically provided herein, and as I've just explained, the decree does specifically provide herein for the elimination of the United States' right to bring related claims.
3: Thank you. Justice Breyer? Well, the trouble I'm having on your side is I can't get too far using the language of the statute. I mean, sure, you could read it your way. Response action refers to any action, state or federal, uh, brought under any statute dealing with a response action, which is defined in 2324. It could mean that, but it could also mean circular actions, Okay? It could mean either. And if I look at the definition of response, it starts by saying for purposes of this subchapter. Then I look at the definition of response and it's about 450 to 500 words, including all kinds of things. I'm tempted to say anything under the sun, that isn't quite true. But all kinds of technical things perimeter protection using dikes, you know, collection of leachate. How do I know whether a state has a collection of leachate law that has nothing really to do with CERCLA. And I don't know, but there could be a lot of lawyers who don't know. And when they go into any one of what could be thousands of cases that involve some of these 450 or 500 words under some law of a state or other federal law, do they know they have only three years to ask for contribution. I mean, this is a pretty tough reading, and a lot of people just won't know they have only three years. They might think they had seven or something else. So what kind of a boundary is this if we read it your way? I mean, what statutes are involved? Have you looked up all the statutes in the states that might use words like any of the 450 or 500 uh, that are there in the definition? Now, you see the thrust of my question. Yes,
7: Justice Breyer. Let me provide some reassurance that our position doesn't lead to the kinds of practical problems that you're worried about. Mm -hmm. The first point is that while response action is indeed a broad term, it is not an unlimited term. The court made that point just last term in the Atlantic-Richfield opinion when it said not everything under the sun qualifies as a response action. The second answer is that a lot of these cases involve sophisticated parties, governmental entities, territorial or state governments, and large corporations. These are the kinds of entities that can be expected to have good legal advice about how environmental laws interact with CERCLA. Finally, to the extent that there are case-by-case fairness problems, those should be addressed under frameworks such as equitable tolling, not by distorting the meaning of the substantive statute itself. Thank you.
0: Justice Alito? Um,
7: uh, Counsel, Guam's
4: argument in very simple terms is basically this. We're a small island, and uh, the only reason, and while we may have contributed to part of the problem with this dump, the Navy contributed quite a bit too. But in any event, all of this, the, the respective liability of uh, Guam and the United States should be adjudicated under CERCLA, where the United States could bear some of the costs. But the United States has cleverly proceeded against us under the Clean Water Act for the purpose of avoiding that.
7: Do you have an answer to that? Yes, Justice Alito. The first answer is that although Guam gets a lot of mileage out of its allegations that the Navy contributed to the poor dot dump, and although we're required to accept those allegations as true at this motion to dismiss stage, we don't actually think the allegations are true as a matter of fact. Secondly, EPA had legitimate reasons in 1988 for deciding not to proceed under CERCLA. By that time, the Clean Water Act process had already been underway for a couple of years, and EPA explained how the Clean Water Act procedure would, as it were, kill two birds with one stone. It would solve both the CERCLA problem and the Clean Water Act problem, making CERCLA remedy unnecessary. Now, Guam says that it should be allowed to recover under CERCLA, and we agree with that. We just think the recovery should be under the contribution provision rather than the cost recovery provision. Indeed, if you step back and think about it, Guam's action, as it were, sounds in contribution. They said they have been forced to bear an inequitable share of the costs, and the United States should bear a portion of that responsibility. That fits to to a T what a contribution action is meant to be about. Now been- let
4: me let, let me come back to the the subsection two
7: argument uh,
4: doesn 't the, the way that 's worded show that all of these provisions are meant to operate together doesn 't that substantiate mr gar 's anchoring provision argument uh, clearly and, and you, I guess you can see this f two doesn 't refer to liability to the United States for by anybody for anything it has to do presumably with liability under CERCLA uh, uh, 9607A,
7: uh, right? I agree that these provisions are meant to work together. That doesn't override the fact, however, that the two provisions at issue here, F1 and F3, have different language. One says under section 106 or 107, and the other doesn't, and the court should give effect to that difference in language. Well,
4: your your argument is that if Subsection three didn't refer to uh, response costs. Uh, to a response action, it would be red light two. But by putting that in, that was a signal that uh, Congress wanted to pick up liability under the Clear Water Act, Clean Water Act, right?
7: It's a signal that Congress wanted to pick up liability for response costs or response actions without regard to the statute under which that arose. That makes sense because Congress is trying here to encourage settlements. It makes sense that Congress would provide a broader contribution right for settling parties than for non-settling parties. Right, thank you. Thank
5: you. Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, I believe I'm right because I've been told this in the briefing that the word responsive action is not used in any other statute. Am I correct? Besides no, circular?
7: No, that's not quite correct. There are state statutes, baby circles as they're sometimes called, that copy the term response
5: action. But they copy our, it in their own statutes. Correct. But our All position- right, now, counsel. Um, you know, one could be prompted to build a lid for a dump in response to circular. Or one might do so in response to a nuisance claim in state court. Both would be response actions. Why shouldn't it matter why a person initiates an activity? It it seems to me, just for the reasons Justice Alito just said, the simplest reason, if response action is uh, circular-specific in terms of all of the activities that it can be, Why should we build that into a different act like the Clean Water Act? By the way, I thought that the harm addressed in the Clean Water Act was releasing pollutants without a permit. That's a very different um, harm than what CERCLA looks to, which is releasing hazardous pollutants with or without a permit. You're still uh, prohibited from doing that. So those aren't those two different harms and why should one extinguish or create an obligation to claim under another?
7: To take the first question first, the best answer is the list of provisions we've provided at pages 13 to 14 of our brief. These are provisions that show that CERCLA uses the word response to refer to actions taken under other statutes, including the Clean Water Act itself. This is on page 14, uh, section 9604, K-12. Now, as for your question about the harms, uh, we don't agree with the characterization that these harms are fundamentally different. EPA itself determined when deciding not to proceed under the under CERCLA that the Clean Water Act remedy would address both the Circla harm and the Clean Water Act harm.
5: But the release didn't say that.
7: Uh, I, I agree, but the
5: question And you is, could have done that just as easily, correct? Certainly, but that's not what Thank the you, requires. Thank you, counsel.
6: Mr. Kagan? Mr. Suri, I just wanted to make sure I understood your answer to the Chief Justice about the meaning of F2. If I understood you right, you acknowledged that there was a gap in F2. In other words, liability for what? And uh, you said that the way that gap should be filled is to say liability for a response action. Is that right? That's correct, Justice Cady. So you're essentially um, making uh, F2 the same as F3B. Is that right? That's correct, and we think one contextual justification
7: for that is F3B itself includes a reference back to F2. And, Justice- and,
6: and Mr. Suri, I, mean, I, I asked Mr. Garr about this, and Mr. Garr says that your litigating position up to now has been the opposite, that F2 was more like F1 that it's circular liability?
7: No, I think the truth of the matter is that we have uh, not said anything about F2 until this point. We certainly haven't conceded that F2 is like F1.
6: Okay, so if you're saying F2 and F3B go hand in hand and they're different from F1, I guess the question that follows is why? What's the theory on which in F2 and F3B Congress broadened out liability?
7: Uh, why did Congress treat F2 and F3 be differently than F1? Is that the question?
6: That's the question.
7: All right. uh, I can think of a few plausible reasons, although I don't know which one is true as a matter of fact. The first is that Congress meant to encourage settlements and therefore provided broader rights with respect to settlements than with respect to uh, non-settling parties.
6: So when I suggested that to Mr. Garr, Mr. Garr told me I was wrong, that it would discourage settlements if you read it your way because everybody would be completely uncertain about what they were liable for, so then they would never settle?
7: No, I think that Congress clearly was providing a benefit in F2 and F3B. It was granting parties more rights like protection from contribution claims and the ability to bring additional contribution claims. Now, it's true that in the particular circumstances of this case, that's may have turned out to be more than a a curse than a blessing, but that's because of the particular factual circumstances of this case. That's not necessarily true as a general matter.
6: I I interrupted you before. You were saying there were some other theories about why F2 and F3 would be different from F1?
7: Yeah, there are two more. The second is that when you have a court judgment, it's easy to determine which uh, section a particular claim arose under. But in the context of a settlement, that might not be something the settlement explicitly discusses. It might just say, here are the actions that the party is required to take. It might be administratively easier, therefore, to focus the contribution inquiry on that rather than the section under which it arose. And the final reason is that, uh, F1 was written by the House Energy and Commerce Committee and F3B was written by the House Judiciary Committee. They may have simply had different ideas about how this provision should operate.
6: Thank you, Mr. Surrey. Justice Uh, Gorsuch?
7: Good morning. I'd like to ask you a
8: question about preemption. Um, As I understand the government's argument, 3B read 3B liability for response action to include settlements with states under state law. Um, And then 3C you read uh, and all those settlements now have to be governed by federal law, and just like that, pretty much every state contribution regime is preempted. Uh, we have a brief from, I think, about twenty five, twenty six states and territories, including some uh, very uh, different ones of everything from everybody from Massachusetts to Wyoming, uh, saying that that would seriously impair state. Cleanup efforts to federalize and preempt uh, every every every, uh, every settlement that, if you can read response action quite so broadly, um, and that this is going to wind up impairing cleanup efforts rather than advancing them. What, what, what do you? What, what's your thoughts
7: about that, Justice Gorsuch? The premise that our position has that preemptive effect is incorrect, and there are two provisions of the statute that show that it's incorrect. The first is the last sentence of uh, F one, and the second is the last sentence of F three C. So, the last sentence of F one says nothing in this that's the whole subsection not just f1 shall diminish the right of any person to bring an action for contribution oh no
8: sure I, I know we have all these savings clauses everywhere or oh, they're all throughout circle but but as I understand you're reading of a, a, a B and C under three uh, you read B to be very broad, and, and C to then say they have to be governed by federal law. So maybe you could turn your attention there if you have some answer to
7: that problem. Certainly do. Any contribution action brought under this paragraph shall be governed by federal law is what C says. Not any contribution action concerning the subject matter. So of course, if a contribution action is brought under this paragraph, it's governed by federal law. But, but, but you,
8: again, you've read the paragraph, which includes B, I think you mean include B, very, very broadly. So. I mean, we're just bouncing through the statute
7: and we're not getting to the core of the problem. No, Justice Gorsuch. Our point is simply. If a party wants to bring a state law action under state law, he can do that and it's governed by state law. If he wants to bring it under this paragraph, it's governed by federal law. There's no preemption there because there are both avenues that are open to those parties. Now, it's true, a party could choose to bring a federal contribution claim with respect to a state law liability under our interpretation, but that doesn't preempt the state. That just means that there are two options open to the settling party. Thank you.
9: Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, thank you Chief Justice. Good afternoon, Mr. Surrey. I Deputy. think you said earlier that if Congress wanted to limit one thirteen f three b to CERCLA, it could have said so uh, and obviously as is often the case, you could flip that question around and say if they wanted to uh, if Congress wanted to uh, usher in your position, they could have said so and so I'm thinking about that framing of what's more likely here. uh, What do you make of your opposing counsel's suggestion that you're cutting off a right to sue here, uh, that there's a lack of fair notice, trap for the unwary, and I think that picks up also on some of Justice Breyer's questions. In other words, in thinking about how to think about what you're characterizing as silence here, let's just assume for the second that that it is, we should think about that consideration and how to interpret that. Uh, Here.
7: Justice Kavanaugh, uh, there won't be a trap for the unwary going forward because the rule established by this court
9: will apply across the country and everyone will know what they have to do. Do you agree that it could be uh, a trap for the unwary, though, having looking backwards?
7: Uh, I I agree that's a potential problem, but that's always the case with any case of statutory interpretation. You you have uh, uncertainty about what the statute means before a court comes in and resolves the uncertainty. That's no reason to adopt what we think is the less textually plausible argument. If I could say one more word, however, contesting your premise of statutory silence, if a provision is silent, the normal rule is to apply it according to its terms and not to infer an unstated limitation. So if you think the textual arguments are an equipoise, you should go with what the most natural reading of the term response action is, and that doesn't include any qualifiers such as under CERCLA. Thank you, Mr. Surrey.
0: Justice Barrett?
10: I have no questions.
0: A minute to wrap up, Mr. Surrey? I have nothing further, Mr.
7: Chief Justice. Thank you.
1: Uh, rebuttal, Mr. Garr? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. With respect to F2, this is a brand new argument, as counsel acknowledged today. We argued in our brief that F2 had to be interpreted to mean resolved circle liability. The government was silent on that in its brief, and with respect, I'm not sure it should be able to introduce new arguments, at oral argument. Having said that, its position is telling. It's asking this court now to copy and paste words from FB, uh, F3B into F2, which only makes the problem worse. The key term is resolved as liability. Is it circular liability, or is it liability under any other law? Of course it's circular liability in F2, and my friend wanted to devolve into the statutory history here. If you want to go there, as we say on page 30 of our brief, the legislative history makes clear that Congress had in mind circular liability. Secondly, the consent decree explicitly reserves the United States' right to bring any claim under any law, including a CERCLA claim. My friend skipped over paragraph 47 of the decree that explicitly says that. Um, I-, I couldn't agree more with Justice order that the harm addressed by the Clean Water Act, the discharge of pollutants into the water in violation of a permit, is very different than the harm alleged by CERCLA or dealt with by CERCLA, which is uh, hazardous substances in the ground. which is is significant under common law contribution principles. The bottom line is that the United States wants to have its cake and eat it too. It sued Guam under the Clean Water Act in order to insulate itself from liability for its own role at the ORDOT dump, Allegations that must be accepted as true, and now it wants to block Guam's actions to recover a portion of its cleanup costs by saying that the party's settlement of the Clean Water Act claim somehow barred a CERCLA contribution claim. There's no basis in CERCLA, the common law of contribution, or anything else the government relied upon in its brief or today at oral argument to allow the United States to get away with that ploy here. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.